Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have my new friend as a guest, Lenwood M. Ross. He's the CEO and founder of Accelery. Um, and what these guys do is they focus on helping the L&D function actually do their job right. Design virtual learning experiences for enterprises. How do you educate and empower learning professionals to actually deliver the outcome that the business is investing in with L&D? How do you encourage creativity and innovation? How do you equip L&D to ask the right questions so they know that so that they're going in the right direction? You know, why are we focused so much on lagging indicators or indicators that don't mean the whole? As the CEO or the CFO, I care about the result moving. I don't care about reten- how, how long people remember stuff. And I think Ebbinghaus and uh, Binet are, are both fault here. You know, they're, they're advocates have taken over. Why doesn't L&D talk to the business? Why are they so passive? So we're going to explore that. And why do they react? Why aren't they focused on changing behavior and transforming people deeply forever? Why don't we measure performance improvement of our staff? And why are they so blind to the business? What's happening around learning culture? So these are the kind of topics we're going to discuss today. Lenwood, thank you so much for um, coming today. Uh, would you mind giving 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please, and how you got to this moment? Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me, uh, Marcus. I'm excited to be here and talk about these subjects. You know, about 10 years or so ago, I decided to leave corporate America. I was working as a corporate attorney at a smaller enterprise, but still big, a couple billion dollars in revenue. And after being extremely well-educated to do a certain job, I decided I didn't want to do that job anymore. And uh, (laughs) well, basically, I I had the midlife crisis early. I basically said, I can't do this for another 25 or 30 years. So I got to find something else. I started a journey um, of entrepreneurship. and And as I was focusing on becoming a successful entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur and not be successful. I, being <laughs> I, I think that might be the majority. If <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, being a successful entrepreneur, I discovered that the economy was going through, the global economy, going through radical transformation. I still don't think people are fully aware of what is happening in our economy and how it's transforming. But I became aware that I was going to need to to make some changes, personal changes. I was going to need to get more productive. I was going to need to learn more about technology and improve my soft skills. Okay. I knew I needed to make those three major improvements. And I found that change really challenging. And I thought, hey, if I am a, 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 a if I a relatively high capacity person and being challenged by this change, a lot of other people are going to be challenged by it too. So what can I do to help people to transform and make this change? Because the reality is that organizations that do not transform their their own people are going out of business. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't know it yet. They, they don't, don't know it yet. They don't know it yet. But the companies that are building learning cultures, they their people have learned how to learn. And those organizations are innovating so much faster than everybody else that they're really accelerating away from 
the re- the rest of the pack. I mean, I don't think people fully realize it, but there is a there is a reason why some of these companies have huge valuation. It's not just what they're doing today. It's that they have built organizations that can continue to reinvent themselves. Look at Amazon, really a company. It's uh, unbelievably nice. huge. Yeah. Unbelievably huge. They continue to invent. They continue to invent, you know, Anyway, so have you have you read the book The Four by Scott um, Galloway? No, really, very very interesting. Uh, the uh, he looks at Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, and Google because they are basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse in his. <laughs> and what's really interesting is how Amazon has managed to carve out its space. You know, all, all four of them actually, and it, his view is that actually the one that's probably going to survive the longest if they cannot fall foul of regulators and Mark Zuckerberg being a bit of a twat is Facebook. That's the one that's got probably the strongest future, particularly with a move to Metaverse uh, or to Meta. But just understanding the potency of having a leadership with a clear vision and a clear way of communicating that throughout the uh, organization at at an operational practical level is just breathtaking. And What I'm really interested about is, given that only about 3% of the training budget is spent on training managers how to manage, and I think there are two things. First of all, I think we need to kill the word training. It needs to be learning. So the emphasis is on the learner to learn, and they then become empowered as opposed to training, which is largely someone standing up the front talking at them. They don't learn stuff. And so enabling managers to be prepared for what's to come. Yeah, yeah. And empowering their people to be the solution. So that now I'm working with one company, Notion uh, Consulting. They they do operational coaching training at scale. So they've developed a software platform that delivers this to thousands of people simultaneously. Now, what's really interesting is... When you do this, all of a sudden, you release the creative energy and you drive up engagement and discretionary effort within the people in their, in their team. And they notice the, uh, the groundswell within about a four to five week period. So it's, it's almost instantaneous. And now what you've got, instead of having the manager being a bottleneck and the manager being the person that they defer up to, people are doing stuff independently. And they know what the ground rules are for them to make those choices and decisions. And know they won't be punished. And this is, again, another really important part of culture, which is failure is a good thing. Yeah. Got to increase experimentation. You know, I read a book last year. It's called You Can't Know It All, Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. I actually happen to have it on my uh, desk right now. Anyway, it's written by this woman, Wanda Wallace. It is an excellent book, and it goes directly to the point you're making. We're The complexity in the jobs that are being done out there is such that the era of the manager that knows as much as the or more than the people that they're managing and kind of directing through expertise, that era is over, yeah. okay? Because if you're going to be an infect, effective manager you're really going to need to enable, empower the people around you, many of whom are going to know much more than you know about whatever job it is that they're doing. 
And especially in these very innovative business models where literally there's like one person who does this very specific thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's going to be really interesting is the growth in collaboration. And that's another area that I fundamentally absolutely. believe L&D absolutely should be really focused on. Absolutely. So you get so much more done by collaborating. A, a great book is Who by Dan Sullivan. And is it Dan Sullivan? I think it is. And, and basically, the, the question is, if you have a problem, uh, the first question that should go through your head is, who already has done this? Who knows? And then go and ask them. One thing that's been fantastic, if you don't have a podcast of your own, by the way, for those of you listening, get one so that you can speak to the really interesting people who are already doing the stuff that you're going to be doing. Their history is your future. And <laughs> spend, time, spend, spend time on asking yourself the question, well, why do we do it this way? Why, why do we train people? I mean, that's a fundamentally crucial question, which I don't think anyone uh, really pays any attention to. So why do we train people? Well, when I think about, I don't think about it as training. I really think about it more as enabling, right? Okay, um, but, uh, uh, so we'll, we'll come to that in a second, but okay. uh, your customers, our market, think yes. of it as training. Yeah. Yeah? So well, why is it we're spending so much time on the, the wrong end of the problem? Yeah. Well, I think it's a legacy th way of thinking. It's a legacy way of doing things. It's, uh, I've got a, it, it's actually akin to the way they're recruiting, which is I have this job description yeah. of things that I think need to be done. And I need to find somebody to fit into that when reality is that, you know, that job is not going to be the same in 30 days, much less six months. Yeah. Okay. So what we're looking for is people with a certain set of skills. Okay, that can do not the job the way it used to be done, but the way the job is going to be done in the future. And this then speaks to a planning process, which is very, very lacking as well. Uh, most organizations, in my experience, they, they will look at the tangibles. Dr. Alan Watkins refers, refers to it as the it obsession. So it's all about understanding the data, the metrics, but most of them are lagging indicators anyway. So there's nothing you can do once they're in. And they're looking for the tangibles. But the reality is that the real value of most of uh, this, the real value of most of the jobs is in the intangibles. The real value of relationships is in the intangibles. It's in the products is in the intangibles. That's, that becomes the must-have. That's what makes stuff sticky. Yeah. Um, it's not the tangible stuff. That's, the, that's table stakes just to turn up. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, anything Absolutely. less than that falls through the I should bloody hope so line. Yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. You know, Greg Sattel, who's a guy that I have been talking to, he's an innovation and transformation expert. You know, one of the things that he says is that, and we're getting a little bit off, but collaboration and social skills are the competitive differentiator of the future. I fundamentally believe that your ability to collaborate will determine your success in the future. Absolutely. And if you if you are not collaborating, you've got to th you've got to think about this uh, as a seller. My value is exponentially increased if I am a pipeline of innovators and talent for my clients. Even if I can't transact with them at that moment, what I can do is I can deliver them real value. And so I can stay sticky and relevant. And I don't think there's anywhere near enough of that because everyone is so fixated because their hair's on fire 
and they're, they're worrying about keeping their job and hitting their quota and uh, satisfying the investors and the markets and all that shit. And no one pays any attention to reflection and asking intelligent, difficult, challenging questions. Now, they don't design the roles for the future. If you sat down and designed the business you intend to become in three years, and then you work backwards from there on the basis of the roles, uh, well, the, the outcomes that you want, right? the roles that you will need in order to meet those objectives, looking at your systems, your processes that you're going to need there, looking at the structure all of this stuff can be planned and you can create a pathway. And we know the plan never survives contact with the enemy. Right. But what we should be doing is designing that business that we intend to become. In yeah. the same way in recruitment, we should design the candidate we hope to hire. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. How, can you de- how, can you dev- how can you design a plan when you have no vision for the future? You can't. So you have to have a vision. <laughs> it starts a vision. with that. That's part of the. That's part of the planning. Yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> so yeah, I have. Fair, fair I talked to you know. I have. To, I talk to people that are sometimes they they laugh at this idea of vision or they laugh at this idea of of mission and purpose. You can't put but it on a spreadsheet, to, Linwood. What? You can't put it on a spreadsheet. Yeah, that's why. But you need these things. You need these things to motivate your people. You need these people. You need these things to give your people sort of a North Star. This is where we're going. This is why we're going there. And that is what motivates people to work hard and work harder to achieve the goal that has when it has some meaning. Common purpose, working towards mutually assured success, feeling safe, feeling valued, being included, having a voice. I mean, these things which we would take as table stakes, but almost no business delivers. Yeah. And so you're looking at engagement rates in the UK of 9%. Yikes. 14% in Europe. Now, yeah, yeah. we're having a tough time of it, but 9%? That means that the other interesting thing is the same statistic is 18% of the UK workforce is currently actively disengaged. Wow. These are people putting spanners in the machine. They're actively working against you, nearly a fifth of your workforce. Yeah, resistance, resistance (laughs) is a monster. Resistance is a monster. And and this is why, I'd I'd love your take on this. I, I fundamentally believe that training does not work. Um, and it doesn't work, not because the content is poor, it's because of the execution, the implementation. It's someone standing at the front talking at them without practice. And training on its own does not deliver the result. You need no. to train and you have to reinforce and you have to practice. And this is something that doesn't seem to happen anywhere near enough within the organization away from the training and this is where I think I'd love to get your take on where uh, L&D can play a part in teaching managers how to coach, how yeah. to develop a vision. That's interesting. Okay, so let me address the first part. So we actually focus as much on, actually more on how people are being enabled as we do the content, okay? Yeah. Because the the method of the enablement is critically important. So 
we don't do the that sort of traditional type of training that you think of. We're putting people in an environment, first of all, where they can feel safe to mm-hmm. practice. That is the purpose. Excellent. We're doing it over an extended period of time where people are working on passion, uh, working on projects, things that they care about. They're collaborating with their peers. They're going out, coming back in, having conversations about it, practicing in the in the platform. And that's where you get the very high engagement. You get the very high participation. You get the you get the behavior change that is critically important. You've got to get that behavior change. Uh, And people want to learn together. Yep. They want to learn together. They don't want to have to do something that's unrelated to their work, you know, that's kind of adding on top of their work. They want something that they can do that's part of their work and kind of keep going, right? Does that make sense? It does. So let me ask you this then, because I have a view on this, which is that what we should be doing is spending the bulk of our money, time, effort, resource on enabling the middle management layer. Because they're the most undertrained, under-resourced, and in the most precarious position, certainly within sales they are. And they are the, the average runway. I mean, in the UK, there are 2.4 million accidental managers. They came in one morning, and the boss had been fired, and they became a manager. Okay. And that was their runway. And managing, you have to care more about other people's success than your own. Absolutely. As an individual producer in the current economic and sales models, you are put on a pedestal for being selfish, money motivated, and being willing to do almost anything in order to get a deal over the line. Now, that's not good for the customer. No. So we need managers who have a spine. So they've, you know, they've got a strong backbone. They are willing to confront issues early so don't shy away from conflict but they're constructive and they understand how to enable their people yeah i hear that okay i have two caveats to that okay the first caveat is i agree with everything that you said i would add that now with the move to hybrid work yep Creating virtual experiences that are shared across the organization, shared across geographies is really critically important. It's a way that you can develop culture without everyone having to be in the same physical location. So that would be my my one caveat um, uh, there. I think you would love a conversation with Professor Eddie Obeng. Eddie, 18 years ago, uh, created a virtual world and he's been developing it and delivering programs with a 96% success rate for major transformation programs. And then the other caveat that I have on that is that if senior leadership values what you're talking about, values the customer's experience, values doing everything to delight the customer, then mental management will feel that they can do the right thing for the customer. What they're getting from senior leadership is make the number. Okay. So L&D's role in this, let's pretend that they were willing to take the risk and put their head above the parapet. 
What advice would you give to an L&D leader who's seeing those conditions exist within his, his or her business? And they realize that it, whatever they're going to do, they, they're being set up to fail unless they tackle these issues like you've been describing. What advice would you give them? Are you saying that manage the senior leaders already? Because if the senior leaders don't understand this thing about empowering the employees, then really it's the L&D person's responsibility to lead from behind. They've got to educate the senior leadership about the importance of, number one, collaboration, not across, not only across the whole organization, but collaboration in the C-suite. Okay, cross-functional collaboration. So educating the senior leadership about the difference. And I, we, deal, we deal specifically with digital transformation. Like that's the niche that we focus on. How do we get this organization from being an analog, product-driven service business to something that's completely different? So in the context of building a culture that will support digital transformation, it's the L&D leader's responsibility to make senior management aware that there are certain organizational leadership and personal behaviors that innovative companies display, they have, the people in those organizations have, and the organization that they're in needs to develop those behaviors or we're not going to make it, right? So that's that to me is L&D's responsibility. How do you empower L&D to be able to influence without authority, without power? Yeah. Okay, so what you have to do is you have to get L&D focused on the things that management cares about. So when L&D is focused on measuring outcomes, showing how the enablement that we're doing is improving the outcomes for the business, measuring those right, the right things, working with the business leaders to measure those out, to measure those right, to identify the things that need to be achieved and then measure those things. Then they will get the... I mean, for lack of a better word, respect of senior leadership so they can have a seat at the table. I see, again, I'm going to make myself incredibly unpopular here. Um, who cares? Okay, I, I think there are two areas that salespeople have a tendency to be really pejorative about. And it's largely because they don't understand them. Also, because they, they often get tactical buyers rather than strategic thinkers. But it's procurement and HR and L&D. And those two should be the right and left hand of the chief executive and the CFO. Because they should be the sharp end of the spear uh, when it comes to executing strategy. But there doesn't seem to be that alignment. No. Why is it that HR, after all these years, still doesn't really have the respect that it should? I think it's just a, a legacy of the function. HR for years and years and years. And, and I say this as a person who has been converted, okay? Wow. I, used to, I used to work in the general counsel's office and you know the legal department tends to have a certain way. 
And our way is that of the administrative functions, we're the most important, right? So, so and, you know, that battle between finance and, and, and legal will, but, you know, I think it's the, that legacy thinking, that siloed thinking about the functions and what the functions do and thinking that finance, legal, HR, and even IT are support admin functions. It's only functions. now, it's only now as a result of digital disruption that these other functions, IT, the first thing that the CEO does when the CEO doesn't know what they're supposed to do about digital transformation is call up IT. <laughs> or call it <laughs> like the CI. You are now responsible for digital transformation. Get a product in here to transform this organization, or we're in trouble, right? <laughs> and that's the same reason why, you know, in many organizations, the CMO is responsible for digital transformation because the CEO has gotten this idea that digital transformation is digital marketing, that those two things are synonymous when we know that that is not the case. Oh, yeah. Insane. Oh, yeah, that's insane, right? But it, that's, 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 you know, that's the thinking. I mean, I, I have seen, <laughs> I have seen even digital marketing firms market themselves as digital transformation experts. Right. Okay. Because they're, they're, they're incentivized to perpetuate that misconception that digital marketing is is equivalent to digital transformation. I mean, there's a reason why there is a myth that digital transformation is all about the customer experience. Yeah, digital transformation is a that part of it is the customer experience, but it's not all about the customer experience, right? Well, again, you know, ask yourself the question, who is my customer? Right. Because you have internal customers and you have external customers. And I think that if you don't treat your people as if they are your best customers, then it's going to come and bite you in the ass later with yeah, low engagement, high turnover, conflict, absenteeism, sickness, uh, underperformance, uh, lack of engagement, active disruption. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that these... The, the, the way that um, many executives think about these issues are legacy issues. They're not keeping up with the way in which digital technology is changing behaviors and changing the very nature of how um, organizations need to engage with customers. Okay, so let's take the whole concept of collaboration, creating engagement, all that stuff. Um, who needs to be involved? There's L&D, and we're trying to change uh, the way the company's culture and everything, the processes, systems, strategies, structure, everything is going to move. Who needs to be on that team? Who needs to be involved at the high level, operationally, and then in the design phases? At the very highest level of the organization, the CEO must lead. CEO must lead okay. the, the, the whole thing. When you're talking about the way in which your organization interacts with your customers, this is going to sound very controversial or maybe even crazy. Everyone in the organization needs to be involved. 
Yeah. Okay. Because everyone in the organization has a touch point with the customer, whether it's in acquiring the customer, whether it's in, you know, the cut once the customer is acquired, the success of the customer while they're there, the entire customer experience, the lifestyle. So we're not thinking transactionally because the idea is not that we have this one transaction with the customer. The idea is that we have this lifetime experience with the customer. We don't ever want that customer to leave. And, you know, not that I want to harp on Amazon, but that early on, I noticed that this was the brilliance of Amazon's approach to e-commerce, which is that I don't care what your problem is. I've got a solution for you so that you leave satisfied, not necessarily with the product, but with your experience with Amazon. And that is what would build the trust that would keep the customers coming back. I know that whatever problem I have, I can trust Amazon to solve it. And everyone has, every organization has to have that same kind of relationship with their customer. The customer has to trust that whatever their problem is, you will solve it. And this is where Charlie Green's fantastic trust equation is being played out in the real world. His equation goes trust equals reliability. When was the last time you didn't get uh, one of uh, that you didn't get the order you placed with Amazon? Can I share that literally? Yeah. Yesterday, you know, we're preparing for Christmas like so many okay. other families, okay. right? It said that they delivered. We couldn't find the package. Mm -hmm. Called them up. Can't find the package. Not a problem. We'll send you another one. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's. Reliability means that you do what you say you're going to do in the manner you said you would within the budget and time frame that you said you would. Credibility is you do what you said you were going to do. So you turn up, take, credibility is that table stakes. You, know, you can do the job that you were contracted for. Intimacy, and that means that they have to let you in. Mm -hmm. And all over low self-orientation. So the equation is trust equals reliability plus credibility plus intimacy over low self-orientation. Because if the self-orientation is high, the trust score will be low. That's very interesting. That's, if I could just say something about that, I've actually not seen anyone talk about that. You hear a lot of talk about growth mindset. Yeah. But the other part that you need is the outward mindset. Yeah. Thinking about the other person. Absolutely. That's the we that Alan Watkins talks about <laughs> uh, in his Wicked and Wise series. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see that outward mindset being talked about as much as you see that growth mindset well, being talked about. Uh, Alan Watkins is a really fascinating chap. I, I interviewed him for the podcast yesterday. He, he, writes, he works around the area of wicked problems. And what was really fascinating was uh, his model is built on three parts. It's the it, the we, and the I. And almost every traditional leader or manager is focused on the it. It's focused on the numbers, revenues, you know, all that kind of stuff, the tangibles. The next phase is understanding you, understanding where you find your bliss, what drives you, what your motivation is, uh, what will drive your engagement. And then there's we, and that's the collaboration piece. And most organizations are traditionally set up just to focus on the it. I remember I overheard an investor say, well, we're not running a bloody uh, holiday camp. 
when they were talking about giving people time to rest and recover and you know to have some fun. If you're working 12 to 14 hours a day in a company, which a lot of people do, why wouldn't it be fun? Why wouldn't you want to create an environment people look forward to? So on Monday morning, they come in with the spring of their step instead of coming in thinking, how quickly will Saturday come? <laughs> we have a major problem in the UK with people binge drinking at the weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's self-medicating all over. Yeah. You know, that's, this is a, it's, it's really interesting. I actually wrote an article released on LinkedIn today where I talk about learning as a responsibility. Yeah. Okay. It's a responsibility that I have to myself and it's a responsibility that I have to my community. Um, and that's, this is how I uh, think about it. I think about skills development and personal development as being about what I owe to myself. Okay. And then I think about career advancement and organizational advancement as things that I owe to my community. In this case, I'm talking about the business that I work in, that community, but the community can also be larger. When we think about both what we owe ourselves and what we owe our community, we're setting ourselves up for that outward mindset that we're not saying kill the eye. We're just saying, think about the we <laughs> as well as the I. <laughs> the I is really important because if you don't look after that, then everything else starts to fall to shit anyway. But again, I think this, this is where the whole piece around management enablement is really key because no one is talking about that. No one is really doing it. I mean, you get the occasional one, maybe. But by and large, managers are left to their own devices because people hire them and say, well, you know, Lenwood's a, a, a big boy. And I'm going to leave him to himself. And so the, the onboarding process is poor. And I think L&D needs to be involved deeply in the design of the, uh, the onboarding process. And what do they need to know? When do they need to know it? Where can they find it? How will it be measured? To what standard? What are the consequences of non-performance? How does it escalate? So people know this stuff. And they, they know what's expected of them. And I think part of this is down to poor communication, ambiguity in terms of the vision, the um, what, what's expected of people. The number of times I hear uh, salespeople say, when I ask them about what their target is, oh, I don't know yet. They haven't issued it. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they're doing is they're running around hoping that it's not going to be too much of a hike on last year. Or they take on a new job and they don't really know what this is, what's expected of them other yeah. than hit the phones. Yeah, yeah. That, that's archaic. Yeah, but it's it's prevalent. I was speaking to a chief people officer yesterday and she was telling me the story of they put in place a new uh, inventory management system, an e ERP system, and... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, they, they're doing this and they, they did it sort of quickly. And she went to the, I, I don't, can't remember who she said was running. And she says, well, what are, what are we going to do about training? And he said, well, I created a training for it. And she was looking, <laughs> you know, she kind of gave her, what do you mean you created a training? Well, I've, I created some emails and uh, <laughs> gave those emails to the drivers, and that's how they got trained on the inventory system. Mm. Yeah, that works. <laughs> and, but but the interesting thing about it is, she, you know, she, there are just very 
you know, there are things about the way the people operations work that just sometimes people don't think about. She says one, she says one of the things that that this executive didn't know was that the drivers don't use the email. So not only did you not create an ineffective training, a few emails isn't going to do it, but they didn't even get them because they don't use, they have email addresses, but they don't use them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, you you see these self-sabotaging behaviors going on all over the place. And it's more often than not down to more haste, less speed. Everyone's in a rush, hair on fire moments. So you've got to put a solution in. I was talking to uh, one of my clients and uh, they are on their fifth methodology in six years. Like the methodology makes the blindest bit of difference. <laughs> if your salespeople, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I wonder sometimes what goes through people's minds when they commission training. Because the number of conversations I've had over the years where they say, oh, we want some closing training. What the hell is closing training? We want prospecting training. Well, why? Because we're not getting very far and we're behind on our quota. Well, what what if you were to look at your sales journey and look at the areas where for the least amount of effort, you could get the biggest bang for your buck? Yeah. And very few of them are looking at the sales process in the way that I do, certainly. If I can increase the conversion rate from first meetings from one in eight, which is the average, to two in eight, I've now got 100% more in the important bit in my pipeline. Right. If I can get that to four in eight through really good coaching, enablement, training, now I've got a 400% increase in qualified opportunities moving to closable. Why don't they look at... Because <laughs> they see... I mean, I put this down to a 300-year-old hangover and it's down to the Industrial Revolution where we started dehumanizing people. The wealth of nations, actually, at the end of it, Adam Smith says, don't do division of labor because it's bad. Uh, but none of the alphas got to that part in the book. Um, so they, you know, they, they created all these uh, stovepipes and silos um, and then made the experience for customers shitty and horrible. You know, they, become, they become this forgotten afterthought at the end of this long chain of abuse. And then you kind of wonder... Why do they stay? And largely, it's inertia. But now it's easy. You know, digital's made it dead easy. SaaS has made it dead easy. So you better be looking over your shoulder. You know, one of the rules I learned years ago was uh, you always have to keep one eye over your shoulder on your way to the bank. Well, I'd take it further, and I'd say you need to keep one eye over your shoulder when you leave the bank because your competitors are sniffing around trying to get in there. Oh, yeah. The, the, the competitors... Today, your competitor is just a, uh, is a, just a couple clicks away. <laughs> and most don't really understand that their competition is not just direct comp- competition. Oh, no. Because, uh, uh, you know, you can save people money. You can help improve performance. I can do that, too. We're not in direct competition. You're, you've got a technology platform. I do it through services. But both of us could solve the problem. But together, what could we do? Now, that's really interesting because I think one of the areas of collaboration that I'm really, really excited about is pre-competitive alliances and co-opetition. The whole idea that we uh, see where the market is going and then we team up with uh, adjacent providers so that we can be first in, uh, foot in the door 
and actually do a much better job together than we can independently. Tech at the moment is so complex and sophisticated that no vendor can solve the customer's wicked problem. You can do, you might be able to be part of the solution, but you really need to think about um, where do we fit? What are they trying to achieve? How can we bring other providers in and partners who can really help them? That makes you interesting and valuable, not just being a, a peddler. (laughs) <laughs> I wrote a I wrote a uh, ebook not too well it's been a while now I wrote but one of my leadership principles that I talk about in this ebook is ecosystem thinking now very few absolutely ecosystem thinking <laughs> okay I, I agree that, it's going to be ecosystems think. ecosystems are marketplaces yeah <laughs> you have to think about you have to think about being a part of an ecosystem because ecosystems are competing against ecosystems. Mm. If you are out on your own, you are going to get... You'll struggle. You won't grow fast. Yeah, yeah, you'll struggle. You really need... In fact, the Microsoft partners that participate in their ecosystem environment uh, on their partnership platform grow 50% faster. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and compound that over three, four, five years. That's a shit yeah, yeah, yeah. growth. Yeah, so so our thinking in terms of the ecosystem that we're building is with that in mind, knowing that no or no one organization is going to be able to conquer the world, let's build an ecosystem of people that think the way we do. Yeah. And the way we think is that people are the key to digital transformation. And those organizations that enable and empower their people are going to be the organizations that win, period. Very, very interesting. Well, it, it, <laughs> I, I, think, I think there are a number of areas that people really should be paying attention to. The first one is how do you create loyalty and trust? And in order to do that, how do you create the conditions so buyers feel safe, sellers feel safe and partners feel safe. And once you've established that, then what do you do in order to create the conditions where you can succeed in the future? And this is where I think there is a fabulous opportunity because when we start to look at the three pillars of what I offer, which is management enablement, leadership enablement, and partnership enablement. What you're doing with that is you're equipping your managers to be able to cope with what's to come, to be be able to adapt. We need the leaders to actually lead uh, instead of being bean counters and uh, bullies and trying to, you know, burning people out. And we need partners enabled as well, because I think the way the market will move is the commodity seller, the the brochures in suits, will disappear and they will be absorbed by intelligent marketing. Um, The really smart businesses will realize that having a land army of expensive salespeople who go sick, don't turn up, don't produce, underperform, is madness. When you can outsource a lot of that through your channel and the really smart ones understand that selling cold is an insanity. Yeah. If you sell cold, one in 20 buying cycles may eventually turn into a sale. When you sell warm, that's about one in six. 
But when you sell hot, i.e., you've introduced me because you and I are intimate and close, and you know that I can help your client who, with whom you also have a close, intimate relationship, there's a 100% probability or 99% probability they will take that call. And if you turn up with me and we, um, I'm timely, I'm relevant, I'm valuable, and I'm affordable, what do you think the probability is that they will buy? Yeah. Okay, so we're going up into the 80-90% mark. Now, even there, it's 64 to 90% conversion rate versus 1 in 20 if you're lucky. Right. Now, I'm sure that must have got worse over, uh, in the last 18 months. Now, when, when you look at that only about 13% of teams last year hit their quota, and I believe it's down to 3% now. Wait a minute. Say that again. <laughs> last year, only three, 13% of sales teams hit their okay. quota. And only 44% of individual reps hit their quota. This year, it's as low as 3% of teams are hitting their quota. And it's below 40%. And in fact, in some places, um, particularly within a lot of the uh, tech companies that are trying to scale fast by building land armies, it's as low as 17% are hitting quota individually. Now, the money being left on the table there, they're, they're, you, you've got to look in the mirror and ask yourself, well, what is it that I'm not doing as a leader? Well, why am I not asking better questions? And L&D must, 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 must get involved in teaching people how to ask great questions and to listen. Listen surgically, listen empathically. The technique is mostly irrelevant. I mean, I, I was with the world's largest sales and sales management training company on the planet. Yeah, we did a quarter of a billion a year in fee income as a, a franchise network. And what struck me is that the array of performance improvement from clients was entirely dependent on who you had as a trainer and how well they understood human beings versus just being a technique monkey. Right. Um, <laughs> and the technique is the least important part of anything that I ever train people, which is interesting because most of these training organizations are incredibly protected over their IP. Right. But most of it's useless when it's implemented poorly. Right. You know, if you come in with the wrong intent, if my intent is to take you for some cash. Right. Or my intent is to turn up to serve, to see if I can help, to genuinely give a damn. And if I can help, help you. And if I can't, or someone else would be better served helping you, then I should introduce them, even though it does me short-term harm, potentially. Yeah. But and very few will do that. Something else must be broken that the, <laughs> that the, <laughs> that the salespeople think that, that the salespeople must operate in that way. Yeah, it's the whole thing. The money right. behind your organization will permeate the culture of your business. Yeah. My pal Bernard Hornung came up with that fabulous observation. So if you're, the money behind your business is focused on long-term, mutual success, mutually assured success, wowing the customer, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, the money behind your business is focused on a rapid exit for the most amount of money, 
and you are one of 45 or 150 companies in their portfolio, and the fund has another four years to run, you are going to be beaten into the ground uh, so that you can drive up the valuation so that the fund looks like it's healthier than it really is. And most of those businesses will fail. I mean, we know most businesses fail over time anyway, um, but we accelerate it by um, having a culture that drives the wrong leaders into the business who then fixate on the wrong parts of the process. And so they fixate on trying to generate short-term revenue, new logos, transacting to hit this quarter's quota instead of prospecting for uh, customers who'll be clients 20 years from now and bring their kids and their grandchildren and who can buy everything from you instead of just buying one thing occasionally because your salespeople sell and run. And so you get all of this. This is what I've described. When I'm talking about the wicked problem in sales, it starts with the money behind you, then the uh, the investor's mindset, the leadership, management, how you manage and measure, compensate, who you recruit, who you consider to be a gold standard in terms of sales and management leadership. Then you start looking at their compensation scheme. What behavior are you driving? Because most comp plans are focused on the front end. Whereas, in fact, I think the compensation, you should pay a lot of money for when the customer reports back that they achieved their outcome that they intended when they made the investment. Right. And if you're in a business where consumption, like SaaS, cloud, all that kind of stuff is important, when you hit an 80 or 90% consumption rate, then you get paid another bonus. When you get an adoption rate around an 80 or 90%, you get another bonus. And when they have the third renewal, third year, that's when there is a huge payout. That is, uh, that's, I mean, that's a level of systems thinking that I think very few people are engaged in. I don't think I've ever heard anyone else talk about the money behind the organization and how that's driving management to do things that are uh, potentially detrimental to the organization over the long term. Incentive structure. I mean, if, if most salespeople are leaving in two or less years, then you need, if, if you're talking the way you're talking, you need to re rejigger for lack of a better word, the entire compensation structure to incentivize um, not only outcomes, but outcomes over the long term. Well, in addition to that, in parallel, you have to fix your recruitment and hiring process right. um, and whom you hire and why. Um, the job description that this job is, uh, or this hiring process is working on is probably the same one that you hired the guy you just fired. Um, and it's seven years old um, because this is a third or fourth or fifth one that you burnt through and you still haven't changed the job description. Yeah, they go right, right, right. There's no no exit interview, so you don't know how the job has changed. Um, Every three months you should be reviewing your job descriptions, or certainly every six, to see whether it's still fit for purpose. The job you sold me is probably not the one that I bought. Within a couple of months, if it's a fast growth company, it's going to bear no relation. And so then we've got to start looking at, well, what should we really be looking at? What are the leading indicators that give us predictability in terms of pipeline, hiring, overall performance, customer satisfaction, being able to deliver, you know, all of this stuff. And it requires heavy lifting. It requires thought. And people who are busy tend not to do this. This is the stuff that gets sacrificed because it's important, but not urgent. 
Right, right, now, right. The answer, I believe, is empowering your middle management. The average min- middle manager has 14 to 20 interventions per day or interruptions per day where they have a choice where they can either decide to answer the question or solve the problem, or they could choose to stop, think, and ask a question, coach the person in maybe three or four minutes to come up with their own solution or at least enough of it to be able to work it out and agree some results that they're going to deliver against and uh, a review point so the manager can then help them. Now, when you multiply those numbers out across an organization, you've got, let's say it's 18 times 240. That's 4,320 interventions per year that are being wasted per manager. Right. Now, you've got 50 managers. That's 216,000 ways the managers can help individuals within your business improve every year that you are wasting today. Yeah. Yeah, those are tremendous numbers. Oh, they're terrifying. When you extrapolate the numbers that people are th- think this is the way things should be done, cold calling, on average, it's three and a half to five and a half thousand dollars to get one second meeting. And then they rip stuff out of the next, pipe, next quarter's pipeline. And you suddenly create a tariff for your sales team of hundreds of thousands of cold calls to stand still. So what happens? You're going to have a traffic jam. It grows at 12 miles an hour backwards on average. And that's exactly what's happening. It's too small to really pay too much attention to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And then all of a sudden, bang, you've got to slap, uh, slam on the yeah. brakes. Yeah. And yeah. Or, or you crash. And more often than not, they crash. And then they go into panic stations. So then they, do, then they spend money on tech, which they, where they sacrifice effectiveness and humanity for efficiency. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably ask you a question at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this. How do we get managers focused on loving their people? Not in the HR sense, of course. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe, and you know, this may be naive on my part. I, I believe it comes down to leadership. It comes down to the CEO prioritizing that behavior. What I have seen in my experience in organizations is that the CEO, what the CEO values is what the leadership team will value. And Consequently, what everyone else will value. Uh, Just very quickly, sorry to interrupt. There there was a case where a CEO started cycling to work. Within six months, all of his leadership team and over 50% of the company were on bikes. That's how important the CEO is. Uh, You are a totem. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, uh, It just cannot be overstated. And I think too often whether you're talking about digital transformation or any other kind of behavior in the organization, if the CEO delegates the responsibility, is not active. Abdicates the responsibility. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Abdicates the responsibility to someone else. uh, And it doesn't matter who that someone else is. Then the rest of the leadership team will not respond. And it just breaks down from there. 
So in parallel with operational coaching, it looks like senior leadership need to learn operational coaching, but they also need some executive coaching. Yeah, they need ex- definitely need executive coaching. Le- yes, absolutely. And most high perform. Let me put it to you this way: most high performing teams, certainly all the companies that we talked about earlier, have had um, and probably still have an executive coach, a, a leadership coach, someone who is coaching not only the individuals, uh, most often the CEO, but also coaching the team. But again, it's really important to bear this in mind. The ones who go on MBAs, the ones who get executive coaching are generally around 1% of the organization. And yes, it's critical. But if you don't get your middle management involved and you don't really enable them, then it's you've just spent quite a lot of money on uh, educating people uh, without really seeing the performance improve. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's it's just like apply, it's applying the uh, medicine at the point of the illness. Right. So if you can fix the people at the top thinking in the right direction, you you might have to use a different methodology, right, for uh, middle management, not methodology, but modality, right, to get those uh, middle managers, then the rest of it will 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 trickle down for lack of a better term. Well, what's, what, what I'm seeing increasingly is that managers are burning out. They're very, very um, stretched. And the knock-on effect of that on your organization, your people, is that they either tend to rescue, which means that they end up taking more and more and more on. So then you end up with massive burnout. Or they abdicate responsibility. One of the things I have seen is they don't a lot of managers don't like confrontation uh, mm-hmm. because they're accidental managers it wasn't their desire to go into it and so they'll work out that Tim is really shit at selling but they don't want to say that to him so they put everyone in the team on training and Tim's results don't improve and they, you've just taken eight people off the road for nothing um, because they it doesn't improve because the manager doesn't reinforce mm-hmm. now, there are technologies out there to enable managers uh, mobile practice is a great one um, mobile practice is like a, a WhatsApp for uh, micro coaching and micro practice. So, as a manager, I can say, Lenwood, um, I noticed when we were talking about the price increase, you faltered a little bit. Would you mind uh, maybe recording a video of yourself? Take about a minute. And these are the things that I would like you to do in that video. And this is how we will assess your performance. Then they can record themselves at a time that's convenient to them. And I can coach them at a time that's convenient to me. But what's really cool about this is the um, increased level of self-awareness immediately. Because on average, they record themselves four or five times before they save it. So now they become self-aware. Yeah. So that's the I part of the it, I, we. Interesting. Yeah, really fascinating. Interesting. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the burnout is a function also of the culture. In other words, yes. the senior leadership is not, they are not uh, valuing well-being and that's right. pretty clear. I'm seeing a trend, particularly in younger companies that are founded by non-fusties like, like me, maybe from the early to mid 40s down to yeah, sort of 26, 27-year-old founders. Mm-hmm. Um, well-being is really key. 
one of my favorite clients ever, Silke Ahrens, in her previous role, paid for her entire team to go through a mindfulness program uh, every week. And she paid out of her own pocket. And what's really interesting is her, uh, her team's performance is that they were uh, hitting an 80% per quarter growth rate. Now, you, don't, you can't grow at that rate if your people are not stable mentally, if yeah. they're not in a good place, if they're not fully engaged, because it just turns into a shit show. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. The culture is at the heart of it. And the leadership has to take ownership of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I talk about that every day. I talk about um, the importance of culture, the importance of focusing on your people. And I talk about it because, you know, I believe that it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is critically important. It is, it, we're talking survival. I interviewed Kerry Smith, who was the CEO of Big Ass Fans. So he originally was a salesperson with them. He worked out a deal with the two founders and he took it over when it was a couple of million and he exited for 500 million. And he is absolutely adamant that your people are your number one objective. Um, And everything that he did was built around making sure that his people were loved to bits, uh, felt included, had a voice. It didn't mean it was a walk in the park. But what, what he was doing was empowering them. And yeah, then they it's, not did a work, it's, it's not a walk in the park for anybody. No. So that's, 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 that's the difference, right? If it's not a walk in the park for anybody, then, you're, then the, where are your people going to want to be? Are they going to want to be at a place where they're valued or a place, place where, you know, they're going to get shit on? Exactly. And th- but the, the thing is that you end up, if you get this right, your cost of recruitment is negligible. Because your best people will find people like themselves to bring in. Um, Your your cost of sale will be negligible by comparison. The level of profitability, uh, the stickiness and retention, um, the levels of engagement. I mean, this is a fabulous place to work if you do that. And as a result, you don't get turnover. Knowledge doesn't walk out of your door. Uh, You've got a steady stream of people waiting to join you, customers on a waiting list. I mean, that is very cool. Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. Then we're, we're, sadly, we've come to time. In fact, we've massively <laughs> overrun. Uh, <laughs> tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back in time and you can speak to the idiot Lenwood and whisper in his ear. What bit of advice would you give him that you know at 23 he would have probably ignored or overlooked? I would say that 23-year-old Lenwood needed to shut up and listen more. <laughs> <laughs> Listen more. Learn, learn, learn from people who have who have been through it. Absolutely. Has uh, Lemwood today learned that? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what what books or videos, podcasts would you recommend people pay attention to to really understand the future of learning? Oh, the future of learning. Great book. I got it sitting right here. Oh, no, they can't see it, but you can see it. Lifelong oh. kindergarten. Lifelong kindergarten. All right. Okay. And who's that by? Mitchell Resnick. So why is it so good? It talks about how people of all ages need to learn like they're still in kindergarten. Ah, It's about loving what you're doing, uh, working on projects, working with other other kindergartners and, and, Uh and playing, which we call practice. Absolutely. What a fabulous book. I should be getting that immediately. (laughs) Lenwood, how can people get hold of you? 
LinkedIn is is my favorite location. Lenwood M. Ross on LinkedIn. You can reach out, connect with me there. I, I'd love to have you also on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter, uh, Lenwood. I think it's Lenwood M. Ross there also. <laughs> and of course, our website, Accelery. A-double-C-E-L-E-R-Y. Now, I've just noticed you've got celery in there, which is the food of the devil, so I'm not sure I'm going. <laughs> Lenwood Ross, thank you so much. My pleasure, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who needs to hear this. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or on LinkedIn. And if you want someone who's going to really ruin your day and come in and ask you some shitty, horrible questions, I am your man. So in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.